supposed to move to Austin when I left New York in 2019. I was going to move to Austin, Texas because I was going there often with friends and stuff like 16, 17. And so when I left New York, I was thinking, I'm going to move to Austin. I moved to L.A. instead. And now I'm wishing I kind of would have moved to Austin because my house would be worth a lot of money now. But <laughs> um, I haven't been back in the past couple of years, but I was, I've been in the airport multiple times for layovers and the vibe just feels different. It doesn't feel the way it used to feel back when I was visit visiting. So I can't shit on it a lot because I don't know what's going on there, but I like to, I like to think it's not the Austin I remember. It's not. I mean, it's, I, so I, I grew up going there. So I, I grew up in a town called Graham, like a 9,000 person town, right? So mm. Bible Belt grew up in the oil and gas industry. Like that's what I did as a child. I was like swinging a hammer when I was 12, like that kind of stuff for, so for how, $5 an hour. From swinging a hammer in oil and gas to being co-host of an OK Babe podcast. <laughs> Well, here's Question the thing. of the year. It is. Wow. It's funny that, that the whole feels, thing. That feels like a major career departure. Well, when you work in these river bottoms where it's like 115 degrees and you're in jeans and steel toe boots for 14 <laughs> hours in a day. And back in the, when we were young, dude, it was like you get paid $10 an hour, right? But if you worked over 40 hours, you got time and a half. So we were getting like yeah. $800 paychecks a week as kids working 14, sometimes 16 hour days. We were just going to work at like five in the morning. Like, well, I mean, we, could, we would just get paid. You know, it's like we were just doing these odd yeah. jobs for these, these different oil companies. And my family had some production too, like small time production. So I just, I mean, it was just, it was a natural thing. I mean, I was opening fences when I was six years old. I would like, I would go and shift the gears of my granddad's truck, you know, sit in the middle in the bench seat. Yeah. And I would remember the gate combinations and open the gates going in. And like from there, I was supposed to work in the oil industry. I was going to college for business. And then I got into fitness. And decided I wanted to do that. So I like took a redirect and they did that for 10 years, I guess. And then um, I owned a gym that failed. It went to shit. Like there was a bunch of real estate fraud. It was a, a mm. complete disaster. Then I worked for a company called On It, got into personal development coaching through that job, started a podcast, and then started coaching and doing podcast stuff. And then from that, I did that for how many years did I do that? Four or five? Uh -huh. And then. Um, and then COVID hit and my job went away because yeah. human interaction ceased to exist. Yeah. And so I started talking about politics because when I was a kid working all those jobs, <laughs> I would listen to Rush Limbaugh and Paul Harvey and like AM radio <laughs> back in the day. And then I moved to Austin and went like to the left. And so I had this kind of full experience of like blue collar to, you know, liberal early twenties kid to like having a kind of well-rounded understanding to what's going on. And then Kelly and I met and, and then I ruined you know, his life and here you are. sprinkle in some psychedelics <laughs> over that decade. And then she gets and now, yeah. And now you're hosting. Okay, babe. Yeah. Um, natural progression. To me, though, I, I kind of feel like that's the ideal upbringing. I mean, I grew up in Utah. I grew up working, you know, manual labor jobs. I was digging holes and trenches and putting in ponds and garden features in people's backyards for a landscaping company for most of my first jobs were all manual labor. And then I went to business school, went to entrepreneur route, moved to New York City. So I feel like that raises you with the best understanding. I think you had the right trajectory to understand what hard work gets you, what it means to make um, a living for yourself as an entrepreneur. I had no idea you worked for On It. Um, I actually uh, just started listening to Aubrey's podcast a couple of weeks ago. Someone sent me an episode. And I'd heard of on it through like the Joe Rogan circle. Mm -hmm. And so I started listening to Aubrey and I, I, I'm really digging what he's saying on a lot of things. I had no idea you had that connection, but yeah, I was his, uh, I was his project manager actually once upon a time. That's so rad. back in the so, early days when we were doing like Instagram stories with captions, like when that was first became a thing, we're like, we should throw captions on videos and put them on Instagram stories. <laughs> like that was, that was our, that was our project. <laughs> it's a novel concept.
Yeah, it was a fun I gig. Though, that's that's really what that's kind of dovetailed into our business at Soulfire too. So that all that kind of skills kind of translated into building what we built with our podcast production company as well. Well, that's the thing with entrepreneur skills. Once you understand how to build something, understand what it takes to be scrappy, you can make almost anything happen for yourself. As long as you have a desire, even if, like you said, it fails like your gym. Because um, I've been involved in a lot of things that have failed. I've done a lot of different ventures. Um, I, I ran like a clothing company in college and I've worked for multiple nutrition companies myself. And even the ones that failed or didn't go where I wanted them to go, I'm stoked I did it because it translated into another career it translated into a lesson I wrote about in one of my books at some point. It made me a better person. It taught me patience. Like I've learned so much through entrepreneurship that I wish more people would have the opportunity. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Bobby Hundreds. He owns that streetwear brand, The Hundreds, big, big time in LA. He said once, uh, I thought it was really good. He said, I wish everyone would try and start a fashion company at some point in their life because because it's one of the hardest industries to break into. And it really is all about um, building a brand, building a presence. And he even said something like, you're going to fail doing it. But what you learn trying to do something like that will translate into so many areas of your life. And so I kind of feel like you have that upbringing for sure. Oh, 1000%. I mean, that's that's the oil and gas industry, though, too. You, should, you could spend a million dollars putting a hole in the ground and it like, could like make five million or it could be nothing. You uh -huh. know, And that's the same thing with the gym. I think we ended up losing like $60,000 total. But looking back at it now, I'm like, yeah, all in. And having talked to people afterwards, like sixty thousand isn't that much to lose. I on was your just going to say six, sixty thousand is not a lot to lose on a gym. Yeah, I exactly. Have I have friend, I have friends that have tried to open huge facilities and lost, you know, three, four, five times that, and they just chalk it up as a learning, you know, a learning opportunity. When I always said that's about the same as my master's would have cost if I was going to get my MBA, and so I, I just got it in a different way by fucking up. <laughs> <laughs> someone once told me an MBA teaches you how to work for someone else. Yeah. Because um, I went to business school. I got two business degrees. And, and there was a time in my life where I, before I was really dedicated to writing full time, decided that was the career path for me. When I was struggling to kind of find work, consistent work, there was a time when I started looking at MBA programs thinking, maybe I do need to go back to school. Maybe I should get my MBA. And I'm so goddamn glad I didn't do that. <laughs> Same. Yeah. I don't even know where I would have ended up. I wanted to go to Ole Miss so bad. They had like a two-year MBA program. Oh, I didn't know that. I was that. like, this is going to be sick. But, um, but here we are. But here we are. It's so interesting. <laughs> and, you know, Kyle, this is something I really respect about Connor and you having such a similar experience. I didn't fail a lot when I was younger. I was such a perfectionist. I was so driven and I was, you know, must straight be as... nice. Yeah. Oh, well, nice. I mean, it kind of <laughs> fucked me up for my adulthood. So there's that. Um, but I just, I didn't fail enough. And so anytime something would go wrong, if I didn't make the national team for volleyball or, um, you know, I wasn't able to finish out my career in college or starting a company and it's not going exactly the way I thought it was going to, I crumble into a bunch of pieces and it has been such a rough learning curve for me because I didn't fail enough as a child. I don't think I had the ability to be resilient in ways that the two of you were talking about. And I think that's such an important thing to, especially, I know you're a dad now to instill in children. And that I know we've talked a lot about with our kids is like, how can you set them up to understand that failure is not necessarily a bad thing the way we've been taught? And you talk about this in your books and resilience and all the lessons learned. I'm just now learning that at 34 fucking years old. And I, I somewhat kind of resent my parents for not having put me in a situation <laughs> where I could have failed and, and been outside of their protective little bubble that they had me in. I, it, it sounds cliche, but 
the best lessons I've ever learned in life were failing. And that's the honest to God truth. And my books wouldn't exist had I not failed because a lot of, like you said, I write about are things that I learned when I was deeply looking into myself to figure out why my life wasn't going the way I wanted it to, why my relationship was struggling the way it was. It was those failures that forced me to turn them into something. And I feel like I'm in, as a creator and as a writer, I have this added bonus of my career to, I can turn every one of my failures into inspiration to write. And not a lot of people have that outlet. And there was a time in my life, I was probably like my mid 20s. I was actively looking for ways to fuck up just so I could tweet funny things about it. Oh, who does that um, sound like? So interesting. <laughs> and, huh. Just do it for the content, dude. That's, that's and, uh, I, I was for a while. And I remember I told one of my buddies one time, I can't remember what we were talking about. And I said, nothing bothers me. I am so stress free because when I fuck up, it bothers me for like maybe a minute. And then I think, all right, how do I turn this into something? And at that point, everything in my life has purpose. And that's something I've been able to carry on um, throughout the years, especially becoming a dad and all the different moves and career shifts I've made. The times when life has been the hardest for me is when I've lost sense of that. When I've started to internalize everything instead of trying to figure out how I can externalize it in a creative thought or you know some kind of cool story I can articulate, that's when life's been the hardest because that's when the hard times feel pointless. Um, and so I think everyone needs to keep in mind that when you view failure or view, view hard, view hardship as something to learn from, almost everything has a purpose at that point and life becomes so much easier and stressors just go dramatically downhill and you wake up just feeling like every day is another opportunity, whether it goes your way infinitely and everything goes right, or you wake up and like weird little things hiccup in your day, but maybe you get a lesson out of it to teach your kids. and. So like what you said, I was fortunate enough growing up, my dad was an entrepreneur. He was a freelance artist. And so he was always used to chasing work and not having consistent income. And he told me very early on, he said, Kyle, if you want to do something with your life, you have to work for yourself. I got the same, yeah. I got the same lesson over and over again. <laughs> I was hearing that. I was hearing that when I was young. Um, my, my brothers went the opposite way. My older brother's a doctor. He went to like 12, 13 years of school. My younger brother's a journeyman electrician. He took his own route, did the classes that way. The only reason I went to business school is because at the time I had a college football scholarship and I was like, all right, if I'm going to be in school, I want to learn about something that I think is going to benefit me. So I want to learn business. And other than that, I don't know that I would have gone to college. And so even though I did quit playing sports pretty early on in college, I chose to you know, party and I got addicted to painkillers and drugs for a while instead. But I still hammered out school because I just wanted to understand how business works. So I could find a way to make it happen for myself. And it was that hard work and growing up, you know, digging trenches that made business school just seem almost easy compared to the manual labor I'd done in the past. That's exactly. I was like, man, I don't think I want to do that forever. And you see enough roughnecks out there, guys that do that day in and day out. I'm like, how the fuck have you been doing this for 40 years, dude? So I had a lot of friends. I remember when I was in college, I was probably like 22, maybe. I had friends that in Utah, it was a big thing too, to move to Alaska and do oil. A lot of my friends did that. And they were making, you know, 100K a year, 150K a year. And they were driving these big lifted F-350 trucks. And I remember thinking, damn, like they're making money. Um, but then I remember listening to some of my professors, the ones I actually respected that talked about 
there, there really is no cap on what you can do as an entrepreneur. There's no cap on what you can do when it comes to creating your own business. And that excitement to me is just so much more thrilling than having like a cap and working your heart. Yeah, you can make good money doing manual labor. And I'm not knocking it. Like, I think everyone should do it. I actually, at one point in my career, I worked with this creative director and I was a copywriter for an advertising agency. And we were talking about how hard it is to make a money, to make money as a writer. It's, it's hard. It's difficult. There's a lot of emotion that goes into writing no matter what. It's a part of you. And we told each other, the best way to create a good writer is just to make them dig post holes for like a week straight. Just make them do nothing but manual labor for a week just so they understand what it means to work hard. And then have them try and be a writer after that because it's going to be just as fucking hard, but in a different way. Yeah. And those skills do translate like the monotonous do the same thing over and over again. You know, when my gym failed, I had this really kind of liberating. I also right about the time my gym, I was new, everything was going downhill and it was like, I had to make a decision. I did ayahuasca for the first time. So it was kind of like, it was kind of all this stuff. How'd you like that? Uh, it was, it was, it was exactly the right time for me to do something like that. It was fantastic. And I've done it numerous times since then, but that was like, I was, I had no idea what to expect. I'd only, I'd smoked like a little bit of DMT once before and done a little bit of mushrooms, but I'd never had Mm -hmm. like a full on psychedelic adventure. Um, but one of the things I kind of realized out of that whole experience and closing the gym, it was kind of all one big experience for like a month of, of just like closing the thing, selling the stuff and realizing how much money I lost. And at the time that seemed like a ton of money, but I, I kind of had this reflection where I realized that you can work your ass off and you can do something for the right reasons and you can provide a good product and still fail. Like life is, isn't going to hand you. It's like, it, it doesn't like, there's a lot of people for every Joe Rogan out there. There's a, a thousand people who work just as hard and did the thing and it didn't work out. And for whatever reason to me, that was liberating. It was like, all right, so I can kind of detach from expectations. I can focus on what the fuck I'm doing, try to do it as best I can. And it might work out. It might not like life is life and things happen. Uh, like I didn't expect world war three to start this week. You know what I'm saying? Like shit just kind of comes up like, and that's the way it works. So there's no guarantee in any of it. Right. And there's a guarantee in working. I can go work a, you know, 60 hour week blue collar job, which I respect the fuck out of people that do that. And there's a little bit of stability in that, but I kind of enjoyed the instability of it. It's like, Oh, it's kind of like a gamble. Always. I was just, I was just going to say, I don't think guarantees are very fun. Yeah. Um, there's a level of stress release, stress relief that comes from like a consistent paycheck. But there's nothing about it that makes you want to do it till you're 75 years old. Um, I, I like feeling scrappy at times. And I like, you know, having like ups and downs. Um, and my girlfriend hears me bitch about it, you know, every so often when like contracts fall through or I have like, you know, I'll do like six or seven meetings towards a big project and the last minute it'll fail and I'll bitch about it for a couple of days. But it's just still fun to me. I'd much rather be doing that. But I want to backtrack on you, you doing ayahuasca because growing up, I, I partied a lot in the sense that, you know, I did a lot of mushrooms, but I never did them with any motive other than I was 19 and I wanted to get fucked up with my friends while we were camping. Um, but I'm actually at a point in my life now where I feel I'm ready to do ayahuasca. And I was actually talking about it with a friend at dinner last night because I truly feel, and this, a lot of this shift happened when I became a dad. Uh, I feel called for much more in life. And I feel like I'm ready to do ayahuasca with the willingness to do the hard work that comes along with doing it correctly. And I'm super open to the spiritual side of life and the energy as opposed to where I was a couple years ago. 
I think if I would have been a guest in your podcast two and a half years ago, <laughs> it would it would it wouldn't have gone as smoothly because I was I was still very close off to a lot of stuff that I think we can probably relate on now, especially knowing that you worked with on it and have that kind of background. Um, so I'm looking to do ayahuasca probably next month for the first time. And it's something I'm hesitant about. Um, like I said, I have experience with psychedelics. I did like acid and all that kind of crap as a kid, but I've never done it like wanting to get something out of it. And I did like a cambo inoculation last year, right before my son was born because I wanted to kind of purge whatever negativity was in my body. And that was painful. Like I was like, this fucking sucks. I just did that for the first Um, time last week. Yeah, we I just did. did it at our house a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, how'd you how'd you like it? I thought it was great. I mean, I've been through I've been through some shit with. with I was gonna say ayahuasca is much more intense than cambo, but yeah, it's, but I've, yeah, it was way more emotional than I thought it was gonna be for me personally. I've, oh, I I've never done something with the intent of having to let go that much. Yeah, um, because I I I am fairly controlling in my life in the sense that I like to know where things are heading. I like to have my hands in them. But I've never done something where I had to like completely release and allow it to just make me sick. And so the third, I did the inoculation where you have to do it three times in the span of a month. And the last time I did it, I did six points and I did the Sananga like eye drops along with oh, it. Wow. Those are intense. That, I've never done those. That was, have you done those before? No, I've, no. Heard, I've heard a lot about them, but I haven't heard <laughs> I actually, so I actually brought my buddy with me to the last Cambos that I did because he was getting interested in it. And he told me, he's like, Kyle, I've never seen someone in so much pain. Um, Those Sananga drops were probably the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. Um, It was, it it was unreal. Like, un-fucking-real. I was warned they were going to be painful. And she had like two different strengths. She's like, do you want this one? And I was like, listen, if I'm going to do them, I, I want to get some now. I'm, I'm going to go all the way and do the very strong ones. And holy shit, that was painful. Um, but the last Cambos that I did, I was puking like for 20, 30 minutes. And I got down to like this black, dark bile. And I have never left feeling so energetic. Like I left feeling high as a kite. I left feeling like I had just done my first line of cocaine for the night. When, a, when you have like that Terminator vision. And you feel like you can identify everything in front of you. Like I left feeling like I was just some fucking cyborg, and I've, I've never—I had never felt that way before with any of the drug use I'd done in my early years. And it, it was great. I felt good. And my girlfriend said I met her at dinner right afterwards. But I'd done like the fast ahead of time, so I was starving by the time I left. And I, she's like, "You just look like you feel good." She's like, "Your eyes are bloodshot as hell." And I was like, "Well, yeah, because I did the Sananga drops, but I feel." fabulous and it was uh, right after that i moved to florida and so my cambo um shaman she lived here in vegas and i'd like to start doing cambo again quite regularly i thought it'd be something nice to do like every month just to get out whatever it is in you and that was my first experience doing something and allowing it to kind of take control of me with the hope that it would put me in a better headspace and even then i wasn't ready for ayahuasca but now I, I I feel like I'm ready to do it. And I think uh, I'll report back to you on how it is for me. And combo is a really amazing, like kind of warm up to ayahuasca. The last time I did ayahuasca was a couple years ago, but I did combo that week before. And it was, it felt like my body was more primed and ready for the ayahuasca. And in the jungle, they actually use them simultaneously. Mm. Um, so if you ever want to do that, since you've done it, you know, multiple times now and doing it before ayahuasca, it's a really amazing experience. 
I actually had that same thought because the person I'm going to do ayahuasca with is out here in Vegas too. And so I thought me I'd come out a couple days ahead of time. I do cambo, kind of get myself ready, keep that diet super clean, and then go into the ayahuasca afterwards. So it sounds like that probably is the right path. It's a super yeah. common way of going about it. And yeah. I've heard I've, I've never done, this is the first time I did combo and I've done ayahuasca like a dozen or so times. Um, yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And even our friends and the guy who who works with us is a dear friend of both of ours and they mm. even do like a, a kind of a um, combo microdosing way more frequently so just doing one point and getting like the body you know that body flush that you comes along with it yeah that then they get a lot out of that too it's like a, a, a kind of a boosted re- immune response essentially is what they're looking so for there as, a, as when, opposed when, to a purgative when you did cambo could you almost feel like you could feel the heat just traveling through your body like where where the point goes on and it's almost like as your blood pumps through your bloodstream, you can feel the heat to start to trace your body. Yeah, absolutely. That was, a, that was the coolest feeling. And when that happened, I was like, okay, this, this might be legit. This, <laughs> this might, might not be some woo-woo. There actually might be something to this because there was no denying that feeling. Like as much as I was kind of blocked and hesitant about what it was going to do for me, as soon as I felt it doing that, I was like, oh, this is, this is good shit. Yeah, man. And you being a new father too, I have a, um, a couple of friends that have done ayahuasca the first time after being a new father. And I know that is a different, a total, and every one of them had very, very different, but very similar experiences in it. And I'm not going to tell you anything about what those were because I don't want to taint your experience, but like that's that time for whatever reason, especially for men, it's like it, women, so, it seems like it doesn't shift as much, but men at that point, like it, there is this, I don't know, you're it's, softening. it's a weird, yeah, it was so well, profound. Here's what I found out about becoming a father. And I had the same friend I was talking about ayahuasca with last night at dinner. I was telling him about this. Growing up, I felt like I had a pretty ideal childhood. Uh, my parents loved me. My parents were together. We did a lot of family things. I spent a lot of time doing stuff with both my parents. I didn't feel like I had a separation from either of them. And so when people would talk about childhood trauma, I didn't feel like I had any. Um even up until about a year or so ago, I remember not feeling like, I remember just feeling like, damn, my parents were, were really good to me until I became a dad and realized that I wanted my son to be raised a certain set of morals and values, the way he viewed the world, which forced me to go back through my childhood and think of, okay, if I don't want him to feel this way, when did I first feel that way? And the unpacking I've had to do. I mean, I know my parents meant their best, and I know that all of us are just trying to figure shit out as we go, but I was raised in the Mormon religion, so I was raised very suppressed, and I didn't realize how much that affected me in life until I was trying not to pass this shit down to my son, (laughs) and I'm telling you, like, the amount of stuff I've discovered about myself the last year that has helped my relationship and has molded the way that I view fatherhood has been so dramatic. There is no other way I feel I could have had those realizations without becoming a dad. It's a really and, interesting place to be in where you're like, cause it seems like you have kind of, um, I'd say like an aversion to being a victim, right? So if you oh, look yeah, at your childhood, I hate, that, I hate yeah. that idea. Um, and so it's hard for me to admit that something was wrong because it makes me feel like I put myself in a powerless position. And that's where I think a lot of people get it wrong too. Like admitting that something happened in your life that affected you doesn't make you a victim. What makes you a victim is if you hang on to that as affecting you forever and ever without working past it. And just through my relationship and 
becoming a new father, I have been able to realize that I actually was victimizing myself in a lot of ways just by not acknowledging the shit that I needed to work through. Um, so I, like you said, like your buddies that have done ayahuasca as, as new dads, I feel like it's almost the best time to do it. And I'm very aware I could go in there and have an incredibly traumatic, deep, dark, hard experience where I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm battling some, some evil within me. And if that's what happens, I think is I'm actually at the point where I'm open to that. Um, if I have to do that to become a better person for my son, like I'm fully on board with that. And I had a buddy that we used to hang out with quite often about seven, eight years ago. And this is when I first started hearing about ayahuasca. We were talking about him last night at dinner. We were always going to Vegas together. We were, you know, rambunctious, dumb, you know, 20-somethings. And he started doing ayahuasca, and he just peaced the fuck out. I haven't heard from him in probably six years. And my other, bud my other buddy hasn't either. And I told my friend, I was like, you know what? I'm actually, I'm like super stoked for him. Because I think what happened is he just got on this different wavelength in life. And he realized that the way we were living was not conducive to where he needed to go. And I hold no hard feelings against him at all. And I'm really fucking genuinely stoked for him that he had something in his life happen that just made him be like, you know what? I got to go on this new path. And we just, we just don't hear from him. No one really does. Like uh, one of my buddies bumps into him every so often. They catch up briefly, but they don't hang out anymore. They don't ever try and hang out. And I'm fucking stoked for him. Yeah, I mean, I've been in situations like that. Like ayahuasca makes you really sensitive, but it also kind of tunes you into some shit. Like, have you ever done? Have you ever done mushrooms and gone to a club? No, I've only ever done mushrooms camping. Um, it okay. was something we did in Utah growing up. Like mushrooms was a campfire thing. I actually microdosed mushrooms trying to write my last book about six months ago, and it didn't work well for me. Um, I didn't enjoy. The days after microdosing, I felt really good the day I would do the microdose for about 36 hours. And then for like three days afterwards, I felt shittier than before. Yeah. And so I, I, I fucked with the dosing a little bit. And it's just not for me. Yeah. Um, I don't feel like microdosing is something that's ever going to help me. And maybe it's because I just did so many of them in my, you know, 1920, I was doing shrooms all the time because I had a buddy that was growing them in his garage. And maybe I just kind of, you know, my, my brain doesn't process them the way they should because they were they were a recreational drug for me for a long time yeah there's kind of like a pavlovian neurological response there too if it's that's like your first relationship with them for sure but doing doing i used to do like a gram of mushrooms and i'd go out because i didn't like drinking that much and mm -hmm. you had to kind of have this relationship with yourself if you go to like a club and it was we used to call it seeing zombies what would happen it's like a switch off in your head so you'd be like getting bottle service or whatever degenerate bullshit we were doing back then and you'd be on mushrooms and I wouldn't be drinking that much, but I'm hanging out. And all of a sudden, like you can feel the energy of the fucking room and mm -hmm. feeling the energy of an entire nightclub is not really good. Right. So then you start looking around and it well, seems the like the problem is that's a lot of bad energy. In a exactly. That's what I'm saying. So we start seeing, so you start looking around and you see guys that are coked out and you start yeah. seeing this girl who's like fucked up and you're like, don't and you start worrying about what's going to happen to her. And you start feeling all that and you start feeling all these things. And I always had, I had an agreement with my friends. I would just Irish goodbye the fuck out of them. I'd be like, I'm out. Like, it's like I had, it's like, as soon as that happens, I'm out. Like, I don't say bye to anybody. I just get in the Uber and go home and mm. listen to music in my bedroom. And sometimes it, most of the time it would work out. But when you start seeing zombies, that's when it got weird. Right. So the, the, the way you describe that sounds a lot to me. Like, uh, have you ever read the book, the mastery of self? by Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. I haven't read that one. No, I've read uh, so the other Don Miguel he's books. The, 
he's the son of Don Miguel who wrote the Four Agreements. Mm. And he describes basically once you get on this certain level in life where you understand, you know, the connectiveness, it's like being the sober person at a party where everyone's drunk. And he says you basically go through life and everyone's participating in this party. He calls it a drama. And you're the only sober one. And if you've been the only sober one at a nightclub or the sober one at a party, it fucking sucks. But also at the same time, you look around and go, damn, people do a lot of really stupid shit. <laughs> and I love, I love the way he actually describes that because that's how I almost imagine my buddy felt that I just talked about, the one that yeah. kind of disappeared from our lives. I feel like he got on this wavelength, wavelength where he felt like the sober one at a party and he just realized, wow, this is just not life. This is not how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Exactly. And it, it's, it sounds exactly like you're seeing zombies kind of description. Like you're on this different field of energy and it's just, it's not. And it just doesn't matter. And you can't force yourself to be into it because then you force yourself to be into that situation. Then you start calling your friends out for shit that they don't understand because they haven't been, mm. you know, drinking jungle drugs. And so they just, you end up just kind of yeah. not really fitting in. So, but the best thing for him to probably do was to just bounce and like not really yeah. say much. What you said right there, I think is super important. Uh, you start calling people out for things they don't understand. That's another thing I've learned from fatherhood and just my own experience of life is holding space and having some grace for people to realize they haven't learned what you've learned. They haven't seen what you've seen. They don't know what you know. And so when you have friends or people in your life that are making decisions you disagree with, or they're making decisions that are clearly fucking wrong, and they're you know going back to the same toxic relationship, and you're just like, why the fuck are you doing this? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you have to understand that they don't know what they don't know. And I was that person at one point. And you know, a couple of years ago, I look back on some of the decisions I was making and I was fairly successful. I was, you know, a partner in an advertising firm in New York City. I was working with a lot of big clientele. I had best selling books released and I felt like I knew a lot about a lot, but I was doing a lot of stuff just because I didn't understand the connectiveness. I didn't understand like my inner child. And I look back and go, damn, what a fucking idiot. And whether that happens, that realization happens at 30 or 50 or 60 being able to hold some space for people and understand like they just don't know what they don't know yet, I think is so imperative. And I think that's where a lot of the spiritual world or like this uh, ayahuasca world goes wrong is they suddenly feel like they're superior. And, it's, it's, oh, it's, spir well, it's spiritual self-righteousness or spiritual narcissism yeah. is a part of it too. Yeah. And that, that is not helpful in anything. It's not helpful with ayahuasca. It's not helpful with business. It's not helpful with you know, parenting, whatever the fuck it is, once you get on this level where you feel like you're superior, you don't connect to people and you just, you treat relationships poorly. And it, it, it's just so detrimental for what you're actually trying to accomplish in life when you view people that way. Uh, babe, how have you been sleeping? Um, I was, it's been good except for last night. What happened last night? The, Theo got in bed at like four in the morning. He did? Yeah. And he was in between my legs and I was so oh. confused. I thought he was a pillow and then I like kicked him and it was, I didn't mean like not hard, but I like, then I was in this really weird like pretzel shape because he was like under my feet and I rolled over. <laughs> it was, it was weird. You were very tossy and turny last night. You know why though? Because you didn't take your cured. Didn't? No, I didn't give it to you. What'd you give me then? I didn't give you anything. Did you roofie me? I maybe. <laughs> Get a little frisky. Um, Babe, 
But real talk, we've been sleeping so well thanks to Cured Zen and their new nightcaps. The magic blend. Yeah, it's a special experience, I would say. <laughs> what? Why is that funny? Can I not have special experiences? Yeah, I love your special experience. What is the problem here? I'm trying to read an ad for this company. It's a great company here. With great products. <laughs> they Can do you keep it together products. and be a professional? I know. Well, I, try not and on this show. I try and share my experience with this, this, why I ended with this my mag- show. magnificent substance I don't that I put be in my a body. Professional. Would you put, just let me do the ad, please? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, anyway, so Cured Nutrition is <laughs> super dope. And <laughs> what are you laughing at me for, Kelly? You act like I don't read ads like eight times a week. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Uh, I have never slept better. I was already taking Zen and then they dropped these nightcaps. 30 milligrams of CBD, 5 milligrams of CBN, and 1.5 milligrams of THC. That good, oh, good. so he does listen, just not to me. I only listen when to Joe men. speaks. I listen to men that have tattoos and muscles. Same. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, is, it is truly incredible. I've been telling everyone it's, it's a better version of melatonin. So I'm someone who has taken melatonin on and off. Fuck melatonin, dude. Melatonin's some bitch shit. But it makes Connor feel awful and super hungover and just cloudy. And I have similar effects sometimes. I just do um, heroin and I do something like that. don't think that I sleep super well, <laughs> to be honest. I don't think my sleep is consistent. And since we've been taking this, we have both said, this is ridiculous. Like, what the fuck is in this? I literally text the founder of the company. I said, what the fuck did you put inside of this? And he said, I know. So we would love for you guys to try this out. Um, you can go to the link in the show notes and uh, use the code OKBABE and you'll get 10% off. Don't forget to get the Zen and the nightcaps together. Merging joy. I'm so curious. I want to go back to, um, you were talking about how you didn't realize you had childhood trauma. And I think a lot of people actually go through that because it's either suppressed or we're just unaware. Um, I know I had that experience. My mom, uh, we had a very codependent narcissistic relationship and she would just tell me what my life was. And so I saw my life through Mm. her lens and through her eyes because she Mm. wanted me to think everything was great. And she was the best mom ever. And she, like your parents did her best, but there was some fucked up shit that went down. And so as I got older and I started getting into plant medicine and doing past life regressions and things, I started seeing that my, my childhood and my life is not what I thought it was. And that there were so many stories and beliefs that were not mine. And I felt like my whole life had kind of been a lie. And so I had to start unraveling what I felt was true for me and what was my experience versus what other people told me my experience was. And that has been, and I'm still doing that to this day, especially as we're getting ready to have kids soon, is trying to understand what was mine, what was hers, and what is true for me, and how do I want to live my life moving forward? How can I construct the life that I want not the life that I was supposed to live for my parents. So how has that process been for you? I'm so curious in that unraveling of like, what makes sense, what doesn't, and how do I move forward out of that? So to, so to backtrack a bit and explain, I was raised very LDS, I was raised, you know, Mormon faith, whatever you want to call it. Around the age of 15 or 16 is when I started questioning it. And by the time I was 17, 18, I was completely out. And I went through a very rebellious phase where because it had been such a large part of my life, I felt like I had to go the polar opposite. And so 18, 19, 20, that's when I got into a lot of drug use. That's when I was trying to do everything, you know, uh, just opposite of what I was raised. And that in itself 
is indicative of trauma because at that point I was living my life for rebellion as opposed to what I truly wanted to do in life. And in doing that, I lost track of a lot of things that generally were me. And that's kind of when I built, I built up a hardened shell around myself. And, you know, words like forgiveness, for example, have such a, a sharp meaning to them because it's preached so often in religion. Um, so when people would tell me, oh, you need to learn to forgive or forgive yourself, I would immediately harden up and be like, no, that's, that's fucking dumb. And that alone right there caused me a lot of issues where I wasn't able to forgive myself and move on for like mistakes I'd made. Um, so one of the, one of the major things I realized is how much of my life I was living in rebellion. And my girlfriend likes to say this often, when you live your life against something, as opposed to for something, that's when you make mistakes. And because I was living my life against something for so long, I, I did a lot of things that weren't me in my 20s because I felt like I just had to because it was the opposite of what I was taught. So a lot of what parenthood for me has revealed is just kind of coming back to myself. And just like hobbies, like stuff that I, I stopped doing, like fishing, for example. I grew up fishing all the time. I loved fishing. I loved going the outdoors. And then in my 20s, I was like, oh, fishing isn't cool. Fishing's what fucking mountain dorks do. And I just... <laughs> I just, Which is I true, stopped, kind of, yeah. yeah you're talking <laughs> stopped, to a mountain dork. It's so. true. But like, I stopped fishing, like stupid shit like that. And it's just so odd to me how many of those things I kind of just pushed against because I felt like they re represented like this suppressed, lame childhood I had. Um, but another example would be, I have not so much anymore. And if you read my writing, you wouldn't believe this because I'm actually very good at, at being open in my writing because it feels like almost like there's a veil there on the written page that kind of protects me from talking about things that are very personal. I've had a very hard time talking about personal things for much of my life because growing up in the Mormon church, if you had something personal to talk about, you had to go talk to your bishop about it. It's not like you talk to your parents. You talk to the bishop who's some fucking stranger and you're going to tell them what's going on in your life. And he's going to tell you how, you know, through some scripture or some, you know, prayer, you're going to fix your life. And at 15 years old, that's not the shit I needed to hear. 15 years old, you're confused. What I needed was some compassion from another human being. I needed a person to relate to me on a human level and be like, oh, yeah, I remember when I was 15, I felt that way too. I didn't need to hear, go read this passage or go pray about it. And so I had this ill-conceived notion in my mind that I just couldn't talk about personal things because no one was going to understand me. I just did not feel understood. And so for much of my life, I just didn't talk about things. And buddies of mine that I've had since high school, when I talk about now, they're like, you know what, Kyle, now that I think back on it, like, I don't know a lot about you. <laughs> wow. And, and he's like, like my buddy last night, you know, just watching me become a dad. He's like, I've learned more about you watching you become a dad than I knew in like 10 years of friendship. And he actually told me, he said, at one point in my life, I remember thinking, because I used to move a lot. I had no problem moving. Like if I lived in a city and didn't like it, and I like within six months, I'd be like, you know, fuck it, I'll move somewhere else. And my buddy, he said at one point, I remember thinking, How, uh, is Kyle either like very good at just pursuing what he wants, or is there something fucked up about him where he <laughs> he just he can't connect with anything, and so he's just constantly chasing things. And I told him, I was like, oh, it's definitely the latter. Like I had destination addiction, like no other, where. You know, if you're not familiar with destination addiction, it's the idea that there's always going to be happiness found in the next, the next place, the next relationship, the next job. It's always whatever the next thing is where you're going to find happiness. I very much had that in my life. 
And until I was in a stable relationship that kind of forced me to ground myself and stop chasing things, uh, I wasn't able to realize how much of that I had. And now that, you know, being a father, I mean, there's nothing more permanent in life than fatherhood. It's not like I can just be like, oh, the next kid's going to make me happy. It's like, no, this is the kid that, you know, I, I'm raising now. And you're forced to really just be present in those moments. And I started doing this thing recently where I don't use my phone at all on Sundays. Like, I don't even keep it on me. I put it in a drawer and I don't touch it. Nothing. If I need to drive to the store, I either get fucking lost or I go to a store that I know how to get to. I don't use Google Maps. And that alone has done so much for me just being present and grounding myself in life. And I don't know if I answered your question at this point. I kind of just think I don't I remember my question, but it doesn't matter. That was great. But... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yes, childhood trauma. We all oh, have yeah. some. <laughs> I like what you said about Mormonism. I, I grew up Christian and resented the fuck out of it from like, and I, I was in it for a little longer than you were. I think I walked out of that thing at about 20, 19, 20 years old. And when I was like, that's when I clearly, I'm like, I'm not a Christian anymore. You know, like that's, I'm not doing this thing anymore. And then for, I don't know, five or six years after that, I just had a lot of resentment for Christianity as a whole, right? And then are you familiar with Alan Watts at all? I am in the sense that I've seen many of his quotes, but I've never actually read any of his work. Oh, you should li- so he's actually what started uh, Sounds True Audio. So this girl would go to him and Ram Dass, these talks he was giving, and record them on mm-hmm. a cassette tape and then sell the copies oh, of the cassette you, tape. You yeah, definitely work for Aubrey Marcus. Marcus. <laughs> I can hear that now. <laughs> <laughs> well, he actually doesn't like Alan Watts as much as that. Alan Watts was like my... Like for with him, it was like Don Miguel Ruiz and these other guys. Like it was like me, it was like Alan Watts. Like I never really resonated with yeah, Ram yeah. Dass that much, but Alan Watts was like... I just fucking got the guy. He's so... He's so kind of um, irreverent in his delivery of spiritual context. Which I respect. Which is, it's it's beautiful. That's how I know the name because the passages of his I have been shared. I remember thinking this is a very straight to the point direct way of explaining a very spiritual or high level concept. And I've always appreciated that about him. It's that no bullshit, almost tough love way of looking at it. Yeah. And he makes fun of everybody across the board because he grew up very religious as well. And then which, I, the, which I can appreciate. I like people that make fun of things. Yeah. All across the board. But one thing he talked about and which helped me, and there's so many little things he said that like helped me understand like a, a concept of the meaning of life that made some sense to me. Right. Mm-hmm. But he talked about if you, if you define, if something controls you, right, you feel like contr- Christianity or something like for me, it was Christianity controlled you and like misled you or whatever. And then in response to that, you act in only opposition to that thing. You're still mm-hmm. being controlled by that thing. That's exactly what I was just saying my girlfriend says. Like when you live your life against something and not to cut you off, but I think it's a really good segue to make here. I think we've seen a lot of that happen politically right now. Oh, Jesus um, Christ. <laughs> people, are, people, are, people are so against one idea that they support an idea that's completely fucked. Yes. Yeah. No, it's a thing. That's, that's the whole, like we have, um, I don't know if you know this, I do political commentary as well. So <laughs> that's, that's my thing. But um, with all of this stuff, like you have people that, are so opposed to a thing, right? Whatever, it could be the mm-hmm. Second Amendment, abortion. It's something hot-button issue that's really good for fundraising for partisan groups. They do that, so then they join a team. So now they're on Team Donkey or Team Elephant, whatever it is, because they're in opposition to something else, not knowing that that team is also just exists to fuck you as well, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's not they don't really give a shit about you. They just want you on the team, so they, like, rile you up against a thing, and you don't even, you're so blinded by that, that resentment or that, that exactly. like, againstness that you now buy this whole other thing, hook, line, and sinker, which has a track record of being fucked. So it's like, it's like you, you overlook logic out of them. It's emotional. It's emotion-driven politics, and it's, it's fucking insane. Well, and I, I think the majority of people 
um, if they would sit back and not fall into these group thinks are actually very middle ground on most things. Yeah. Um, but they feel the need to align with one direction or the other because, first of all, labels in our society right now are probably the most the, they're used in a very shameful way and they're used in a very empowering way where if you can put a label on someone, they suddenly feel like a hero or they suddenly feel like a piece of shit. Yeah. And people are so afraid of being labeled along the wrong thing right now. They'll support anything blindly just to avoid that happening to them, particularly online. And, and you know, if you, if you want to get political deep for a second, I'm, I'm willing to do that. So I, growing up in Utah, I was raised very very Republican. Most people in that state were, and my, my family always has been. Um, but I hated Donald Trump. I thought Donald Trump was a fucking moron. I still do think he's a moron. Yeah. Um, I think he had the right message. I think he was the wrong messenger to deliver it. Mm -hmm. And I think you see a lot of that happen online too, where the right personality can deliver a message that makes no fucking sense. But because the right person said it, people will buy out, buy into it. Whereas Someone that a lot of people dislike can deliver the the right message that really would help. And just because people dislike that person, it goes back to, well, I hate this guy, so I hate everything he's saying. When everything that um, he says is now the bad thing. So whatever, if he says yes, this thing may work, then it's now, the, the, it's like, well, that's, but the, that's not. But then a different character will say the exact same thing six months later. And now everyone's like, oh, this makes sense. It's like, what do you mean? Like the state <laughs> of the union mean? last night? Yeah, what do you mean? <laughs> this other guy was saying it six months ago. So I think that's where I think that's where Trump's policies went wrong. As an individual, I just think I, I, I could never wrap my head around him. I always, from the get-go, was like, God, this guy sucks. But growing up very Republican, growing up, especially as a free-thinking entrepreneurial mindset, the stuff that he was trying to put in place was like, this is, yeah, this is the kind of shit we need. This is the kind of stuff that's actually going to work. Well, and my disagreements with him were a lot of, uh, and, and having speaking about, speaking about it publicly and in depth, I tried to keep it as policy focused as possible because there was so, yeah. it was like, a, there was a thirst for that. It's like, hey, here's the thing. Like, like he doesn't even talk about the fact that he did the first step act, which was getting nonviolent drug offenders out yeah. of prison. But you can't do that and simultaneously tweet law and order 17 times a day. Right. Like you had, so it's like you, he could, he had to pander to his base. And I was like, I don't respect, that's not, that's not, that, there's no integrity in that, which I don't expect integrity from fucking politics anyways. But it Anyone. was like, dude, like say, like say what you, you, you clearly care about this. Kanye came and talked to you about it in the Oval Office. Like it was a huge deal. Like mm -hmm. stand behind it and you'll win or encourage your people to vote by mail or do, like there's so many things. You, all you had to do is act like a fucking grown up and you would have beat well, this corpse. That that's we have exactly, now. exactly what I'm saying. I was just going to say you said act like a grown up. You want to talk about some of the childhood trauma. Ooh, <laughs> <honey>. <laughs> that motherfucker has some childhood trauma. Daddy issues um, for days, dude. And I think it's George Carlin that said, you know, the thing about politicians is they're all on the same team. Like whether whether they're one party or the other, they're on the same team. We're the ones that aren't included in any of that. And I saw someone one time online that made the relation between uh, Tom and Jerry. How Tom and Jerry act like they're you know they're against each other, but really they're just they're best friends at the end of the day. That's how all these political parties work. Yeah, I, lo um, I love that, that George Carlin bit where it's what is it? You're a, it's a big club and you ain't, you ain't in it. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly the bit I was referencing. I couldn't remember, but that's that's what it is, and that's what people need to realize. On my page, I mean, the past year and a half, I've been very outspoken about the media and politicians in general, and I haven't chosen sides for a reason. And a lot of people like to think, oh, well, you're afraid to choose sides. It's like, no, I'm choosing a side. And the side I'm choosing is the people like the side I'm choosing is us. That's the side that I'm in. I'm not in this fucking club. and I'm never gonna be. 
Yeah. Uh, even if you're someone that makes, you know, 10, 20 million dollars a year, you're not in that fucking club. That club is just some next level elite shit that most people will never benefit from. They will yeah. never see a positive thing come to them directly because they're not included in it. There's always stuff going on that's meant to benefit only them. And that's where people just go wrong. And that's where, you know, what's going on right now with Ukraine, for example, the amount of unity that suddenly came together for Ukraine, I had said something a couple of days ago. I was like, this is the unity we needed in our country the past two years. Like, why the hell couldn't we unify for our own country the way we're unifying for what's going on there? Because it really is, oh, well, it's for the people of Ukraine. What about the people here? Yeah, what about exactly. What about the people who lost their life savings because they were forced to close their business for a month? What about all these families that are now more dependent than ever on the government because they've been led to be more dependent? Like, what about them? Like, you know, I chose a side. The side is the people. And that's what people don't fucking understand. And it's one of those things that... I talk about holding space and having grace for people that I really try hard to do. I try not to name call. I try not to make anyone feel inferior or stupid because I've been privy to some fairly high level meetings. I've met some very powerful businessmen in my life and I still occasionally, you know, hobnob with individuals that I would consider big players in, in the world. And I've overheard these conversations and I feel like I've, I know a bit more about things that other people might not know. And so I, I'm not going to try and make someone feel stupid. And I'm, I'm not against anyone. Um, what I'm against is just this, this fear mongering and this greed and this very clear manipulation that is happening at these high levels that because people are so against what, what, what was before this presidency, they can't see that it's, being done right in front of their face even worse well yeah it's like it's like well the whole thing with trump was that he was an authoritarian but now look what happened yeah you know what i mean yeah. and it, it was just a weird it was such a weird deal and that's you know my show is called politically homeless for a reason like yeah. i was like i want to create a place for people that are of, of a broad of actually diverse uh set of mindsets or perspectives or life experience where we can like have discussions that are that are like fun and productive and disagree in like a really fun way like people in my patreon call me out on my shit all the time and it's like i welcome i that. like I like that podcast title because I, I feel like most people are politically homeless if they if they allow themselves to admit it. Yeah. Um, I don't think most people are a member of a party. They just feel like they have to be. Because it's yeah. the lesser of two evils. It's, that's what they want to be a part of, the lesser of two evils. And that's like weird. And that's like yeah. dis it's such a disempowering way to live your life. Yeah. If you're like made, like if you were picking mm -hmm. out a job and you're like, well, I'm going to take the lesser of two evils. Like that's not a way to go about doing anything and so why why have we been deluded into believing that's a, a proper thing yeah. to do with our life when it comes to our policy decisions imagine marrying the lesser of two evils it's like okay you got these two people that totally fucking suck i'm gonna marry the one that sucks less and yeah. this is gonna be awesome i'm gonna dedicate the rest of my life to this person because they suck less is that what well, you it's, did it's there? Kind of, yeah no no that's not <laughs> what I did. you know the only i think the only time where that's appropriate is if you have like hometown sports teams that both suck and you're like, well, I want to root for somebody, so I'll pick yeah. the one that doesn't that sucks a little bit less. Yeah. But that's what no. that's what politics has become. Still, it's become a shitty I sports team. I still don't feel like that's appropriate at that point. <laughs> just don't watch. Just don't watch sports. Yeah, I don't really do that much anymore. But I, I can see. I, I can see I, the appeal. I don't watch sports at all. I mean, and I Same. played college football. I only played college football because growing up, I, I mean, I'm six six. I'm a larger dude, and so it was expected of me to play sports. And again, this was my programming in my younger years, where I did a lot of what was expected of me. 
And everyone in my neighborhood was like, oh, you got to play football. You got to play football. And so I did. And I got a scholarship for it. But the first two weeks of training camp, I realized, wow, I don't love this fucking game. Uh, this is not something I want to do with my life. And almost like one of those things where you attract it to yourself. I ended up dislocating my knee two weeks into training. So I couldn't, I couldn't play anyway. And I was like, okay, cool. So I still got a scholarship and I don't play football, which I didn't want to play in the first place. Uh, but that's what kind of spiraled me into uh, opiates and, you know, oxycons and all that kind of stuff. And I had some buddies that went sadly very far down that route. And a good roommate of mine actually overdosed on heroin and stuff in college. And it was just, again, I, I was doing what was expected of me in playing sports. And had I not done that, who knows? My life might have taken a dramatically different turn. And I never would have got into painkiller and substance abuse at that level that early on. But you don't know. It's just one of those things. But. I don't I mean, even know what's I, going with that. But yeah, I oh think, yeah, don't, um, don't root for sports teams. That's what we're talking <laughs> yeah, right. about. I, uh, well, it's also, it's people, people get wrapped up in them and you're wearing like a grown man's shirt. Oh you know what I mean? It's I like, cannot. I used to weird. work, I used to work in sports. I was a reporter for the Lakers and the Dodgers. And all I did was see grown men wear other men's jerseys and say, <laughs> our team won, our team lost. I'm like, you didn't do fucking shit. You so, were drunk <laughs> in the stands or on your couch eating fucking Cheetos. Shut the fuck up. Like I cannot like we, the we thing. Well, and the thing was like, I watched the super bowl with no emotional attachment. And I was like, Oh, it was like a good game. Like it was fun to watch a good yeah. game. I was just excited. I was like, I didn't give, really give a shit who won. It was just like, that was fun to watch. Ugh. Talking back about Don Miguel Ruiz jr. He actually wrote a book called the five levels of attachment. And he uses sports as the, you know, the, uh, the way to explain that in a way that everyone can understand almost like the layman's terms, your addiction or your attachment to a sports team. And that level five attachment is the people who paint their face and say we. And if their team loses, they allow it to completely derail their day. And the level one attachment is like you just said, where you can watch and enjoy the game. And then when the game's over, it's over. You enjoy it for what it's worth. It's entertainment. And at that point, you go on with your life, which is another great book. The Five Levels of Attachment is a book that helped me a lot. Just like you're really big into Alan Watts, I'm big into the whole Ruiz family. I've read everything those guys have ever put out because I think it's such... There's such profound concepts presented in such digestible ways that you can read one of those books in a weekend and immediately start seeing it, you know, take force in your life the next day. The way they put stuff together. Well, those audio books are like four hours too. It's like it's you can knock it out yeah. so quick, and you can really listen so to them. Yeah, they're so good. I mean, that's one thing that I love about Alan Watts and the Don, and the Ruiz family, and I've seen a lot of their stuff too, even though I haven't read all their books. Is I think there's something, and you do this really well as as well in all of your books that I've I've flipped through here. It's like making complex things simple and like storifying them where it's like, okay, I can like to, like the, to be able to make something really complex, relatable. It's to me is like a, one of the greatest signs of intelligence. Like if you can relate to people, if you have enough empathy, if you have a, a, a good enough understanding where you can really like make something that's can be, you can make yourself sound superior and self-righteous by making it sound complicated, but can you relate to people and make it sound simple? And like give them an entryway into something that can actually help their life or something that gives them, or even if it's just fun or funny or just interesting. Mm -hmm. Like that, that to me is something that isn't done enough. It's like, let me make this intentionally more complicated. So now I seem superior to everybody else versus being like, no, it's actually pretty straightforward. Like if you just boil it down to this and that's a good entry point. And if you want to get, if you want to make it more complex, that can be fun for you if you get into those like mental gymnastics, but otherwise it's just, it can be, it can be, it can be simplified. It can be delivered in a way that's relatable. Well, I appreciate the compliment on that because it is something that I do try to do because personally it's what works for me. Um, I actually talked about this on a podcast a couple of weeks ago where 
I'm a writer. I've been writing for you know almost 15 years of my life. I could very easily muddy these concepts up with some complex language that makes me sound very intelligent. Uh, but there's no reason to do that because the ultimate goal of writing should be to connect with people. And the way that I find connectedness comes most organically is just being real with it. And that recent book, the one I wrote called Speech Therapy, I wrote that in a conversational tone because I wanted people to feel like they're almost just sitting and talking with a good friend. And if you have that one friend you go to for advice, you don't go to the friend who talks to you like they're superior. You don't go to the friend who uses a bunch of big fucking words they just found on thesaurus.com. You go, you go to the friend that can relate to you, that talks to you real and talks to you like another person. And I think that's where a lot of writers go wrong. And I see a lot of this online with people that more or less inhabit the same space I do when it comes to the style of writing, where I can read someone's you know quote and be like, wow, they purposely made this just try and sound really fucking intelligent. And all it does is sound like they're a fucking asshole. Yeah, and exactly. it's just, I can't remember which artist it was. It was one of the, the great Renaissance artists who said, simplicity is the highest form of sophistication and it really is in business and in life i mean if you want the perfect business example you look at something like uh apple uh everything apple does is incredibly simplistic but it is the most sophisticated cutting-edge technology and that's something that steve jobs understood very well and then again you look at the great writers you look at the ruiz family those men could very easily write books that would require you to go back and read the page three times and Google words. They don't do that because that's not what works. Their level of understanding and the way to connect and make readers feel seen and heard requires them to be very simple with their work. And I think that might be something that people don't take them as seriously for because of that. But with the exception of the four agreements, a, a lot of their books, I don't think people read because they feel like they're just almost too simple. And it's the simplicity that I, I recommend the mastery of self to everybody. I, I yeah, that's a good it's one. Like, it's like, if you like the four agreements, you have to read the mastery of self. It is so simple, but so profound and so heavy in what it actually talks about. Um, I don't think it gets the credit it deserves because of that. Yeah, for 1,000%. Somebody else who, this is a good example here, is Jordan Peterson. And people have lots of feelings about him, and I think he's relatively misunderstood. <laughs> but um, he wrote Maps of Meaning, right? Which is like this, yeah. it's a textbook. It's humongous. And then, the, and then like, what's the 12? 12 Rules for 12, Life. 12 Rules for Life. Which, which is, is simple. It's simple, straightforward. Like, they're like, pet a cat. If you see a, if you see a cat on the street, pet the cat. It's like, mm. it's like and here's why, or a dog. Or, you know, it's like just being, like, being friendly to animals is a good personality trait. And um, Mark Manson's another one, right? The Subtle Art of Not mm. Giving a Fuck. Like, he's, it's a, you read that book, and it's like a bunch of blog posts. You know, it's like you can read through it, and you can like feel like, oh, this is like a real person that's talking to me. And my dad uh, recently got out of prison, right? So uh, about a year ago now, probably, I guess. He was in there for about six years. Um, and for him, he was texting me from there and he was reading these books. Right. And this is somebody who I think he actually, I think he graduated high school, barely if he did at all painted cars, stuff like that for that's, that's it's been his job forever, but I always struggle with addiction and shit like that. And I think it's mm -hmm. important. It helped me a lot to be around addiction and like, understand that as I'm sure I didn't understand like what goes on as I'm sure you have those kind of similar experiences from being in the middle of it, having friends in the middle of it. But 
seeing the way that those books impacted my dad while he was locked up and he had to wait, you know, a month. They have one copy of these fucking books in prison. One copy of each. So you have to get on the list, which I think is absurd. These guys can't like listen to a Joe Rogan podcast or, you know what I mean? Like stuff that could actually help them out. Like a lot of them have access to things that would make them, you know, help them have a better life. But it really meant a lot to me that these books were written in a way that my, somebody like my dad could read, improve his life a little bit, like give him a concept to understand. And then when he gets out, keep his fucking head on straight. You know what I mean? Like that to me felt really, really cool. Cause to me, they were good books and I liked them, but I also like to get in the heady shit, right? I want to read like the Bhagavad Gita and like, I like to get into the ethereal and like make it complicated so I can sort it out myself. But that, I'm not, I'm, I'm the exception, not the rule, you know? Well, you're not the exception to the world. You're just in that, you're into that next level. I too like to read very complicated, heavy books. Um, you know, Sapiens and books like that are very heavy reads. And a lot of people will never read a book like that because of you know, the way it's written. Um, I think if you're a writer, and we'll take Jordan Peterson, for example, uh, Maps of Meaning, a lot of what was in Maps of Meaning was actually rewritten in the 12 Rules for Life. And he, he's, he says that in the 12 Rules for Life. And I think what he realized is I think he overwrote Maps of Meaning. I think yes. he made Maps of Meaning too heavy. And that's why it didn't succeed the way his subsequent book did. Well, it's kind of like Carl, it was kind of mirrored Carl Jung's work where it's like huge books, really complicated. Well, and, and I think that's the example of a writer writing for other writers. I mean, he's an academic. He's a professor. He's a Ph.D. educator. And you see a lot of creators do this where, you know, writers write to impress other writers or musicians create music to impress other musicians. And when you do that, you end up making like really incredible works but you don't make works that the mainstream public can connect with. And I think if you're a writer, if there's any writers that are going to listen to this and you have something that you feel can help a lot of people's lives, you are doing your message a disservice by overwriting it. And you're trying to impress, you know, maybe your literary agent or you're trying to impress, you know, another writer, but really who you need to not, well, not you don't you don't need to be impressing anyone. What you need to be trying to do is creating a piece of work that people will actually connect with. And that's where you see you see this happen with like movies too, where there's like these great films that were made by directors. They were clearly just trying to win an award as opposed to making a film that a lot of people could connect with and talk about. And that's why certain films become blockbusters, because they're done in a way that everyone relates to. Yeah. You know who I, I just thought of a reasonable example for this is John Mayer. Right? John Mayer. Like John Mayer is an <laughs> incredibly talented guitar player, right? And plays with the Grateful yeah. Dead and stuff like that. But when you listen to his music, like that's not really very much a part of it. You go see him live, you see some of that. But like his music is like, everybody can listen to it. It's easy listening. It's the more music. approachable version of John Mayer. Exactly. But if yeah. you, when you see him rip on a guitar, you're like, Oh shit. Like this guy's, and he, it surprises you. It surprises you that he doesn't ever go, like doesn't go to that level in his music. He that doesn't often. have to. And he also doesn't need to prove himself, but he creates a really, he's like, an ass like the two of you. And he's like, <laughs> fuck everybody. <laughs> God, I would love to hear a podcast with you two and John Mayer. And then I could just watch. I would love to talk with John Mayer. I actually think he sounds like a fascinating individual. And I think he's very down to earth and humble. And he's, he's funny. I love that. Um, he did that music video in one of those like blue green screen. Oh yeah. Like, he, like actually in one of those green screen video <laughs> things that, that, that cracked I me. I, I don't know which music video you're talking about, but I'll Google it after this. But I've always just found him to be a very down to earth dude. Everything I've seen about him and, 
the way he conducts himself, he could easily have gone the Kanye route and become some incredibly smug, untouchable individual with how talented he is. I mean, both those men are incredibly fucking talented. And it just shows what happens when one person decides to remain relatable and the other person just kind of gets high on their own supply too much. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, I find um, it hard. To, I find it hard to tolerate Kanye, man. And that's a, a perfect example. A lot. Perfect example. <sighs> yeah, I mean, there's still things I respect a lot about him, though. I think it takes a, a certain level of I don't give a fuck to do the stuff he does. But at that point, of some of that I don't give a fuck is actually what we just talked about where you're trying to live in rebellion and he's trying so hard to kind of buck the system in certain ways that I think he actually is harming himself quite often. Yeah. Kyle, I'm really curious. We've talked a lot about how becoming a dad has changed you. And I'm, I'm so curious how you feel that's going to impact your writing moving forward. It is going to make my writing significantly better. Um, That recent book, Speech Therapy, I actually tried to originally write it back in 2017. And I had told the idea to a a literary agent at the time. And she had told me the idea wouldn't sell. So then I was kind of fueled by rebellion to be like, oh, fuck this. I'm going to write this book. And I couldn't write it. I I couldn't get more into a couple chapters into it. Then I would delete it and start over. And I'd touch it again in six months. And... The realization I came to as to why I couldn't write it before is I wasn't softened enough to write it. Uh, Because that book is, again, it's meant to be like talking to a friend. It's meant to be the kind of advice that some of it is just common sense you need to hear, which happens to us all the time. We get too caught up in our own heads and we forget about things we know. And some of it is advice that I've learned the hard way. Like I said, going through my own stubbornness or making my own mistakes. and. I wasn't ready to write that open at the time in 2017. And then I tried to write it again in 2019. I was actually working on it the first time we talked about being on your podcast. I was actually actively working on it when I lived in Marina Del Rey and I shelved the book again. But becoming a dad allowed me to write it because I I wrote it with the approach of if my son were 18 or 19 or 30 or whatever, if he were coming to me with one of these issues, how would I talk to him? And that's how I wrote it. And once I had that mindset, I was incredibly motivated and I was able to write it very quickly um, in terms of how quickly one could write a book. And this next book I'm working on, I'm actually working on a book that very much is aligned with how fatherhood has changed my life. And that's going to be kind of the core focus of it is the things I've learned from becoming a dad. And they're the realizations that I said, I don't think I would have found within myself had I not become a dad. And I was one of those people that didn't think I was going to be a dad. Um, I wasn't opposed to having kids, but I wasn't really looking for it either. Um, I was kind of going to do that route of, you know, the guy who has kids in his 50s after he's done everything kind of that, that kind of that kind of shit made sense to me. And I am so fucking glad it didn't happen that way. Um, it was a surprise, although it shouldn't have been because my pullout game is weak as fuck. But um, I should have known he was going to come sooner than expected. Um, but it, 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 I am so stoked he came when he did, especially it's almost been kind of, it's been kind of a blessing he came while the world was kind of shut down in this weird little pause because my girlfriend hasn't been working. And so she's been able to be a very attentive mom, which has been very helpful for me to continue doing the things I need to do for my career. And 
he just came at the right time. And it's one of those things where people say, you know, it's, things just happen for a reason. And a couple of years ago, I would have told you that was bullshit because I was still, I was so against my religious upbringing that I kind of closed off to just the realities of life. And he did come at the right time. And I think as far as my writing is concerned, it is going to get dramatically better because I am more willing to go into the dark areas I wasn't willing to go into before. And that's what separates, in my opinion, really good writing from truly great writing is the writing that is vulnerable and exposed and raw and the writing that makes you second guess whether or not you should put it out there because it makes you feel a little uneasy to talk about those kind of things. That's where my writing's headed. And I am very much looking forward to seeing what happens with that. Have you had any desire to write kids books? I actually already have written two kids books. Oh, wow. Hell yeah. (laughs) They're on my desktop, on my laptop. I wrote one pretty quickly and I wrote another one I've been pecking away at. Um, I'm going to have my father illustrate them. So my my mom and dad actually wrote a couple of children's books when I was growing up. And so my mom's an English major and she was my editor for a long, a long time in my career. She actually edited my most recent book. Um, so I've always had the idea of like, oh, I'm going to do some children's books and have my, my father uh, illustrate them. So I have one done. I have the other one pretty much done. It's just I have so much on my plate right now. That's one thing I need to get better at is kind of just aligning things a bit at a time. Just doing a one at one. I, I always am working on multiple projects, which I know probably isn't the most conducive thing to do. But it's too tempting to me when I have an idea or I feel this like inspiration. I just, I feel like I have to just bust them out in the moment because I don't know when that's going to come again. Bro, I'm the host of three podcasts. I get it. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I think part of that, I think that's kind of like our entrepreneurial spirit too, when you have that. And I, it comes back to where this kind of all began. I'm not afraid to fail. And so I don't talk myself out of ideas. If I have an idea, instead of sitting there and thinking of all the ways it's going to go wrong, I just think, okay, if I do this, this is going to happen. And I just automatically assume it's going to get done and it's going to work for me. And if it doesn't, it doesn't really derail me. I just, I have so many other ideas going. It's like, okay, cool. Well, I'll just write this book. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you ever heard of human design? I have not. So now that you're all spiritual and woo woo and shit, um, I, what the fuck did you just call me? <laughs> <laughs> my little ayahuasca friend. Um, so human design is super cool because, um, for people that want to better understand why they operate the way they do and make like things like I need to do seven projects at once because it's just how I work. Human design is a really cool way of better understanding ourselves and how we operate. And I think for me, at least, um, knowing Connor's human design has really helped because we operate very differently. And so I understand why he has to do a bunch of projects at once, why he can't finish one thing and he'll move to another and then he'll go back to the other. That's how he works. And I don't do that. Um, but I think you would actually really like human design because it's actually super pragmatic and very grounded and it can get very woo of course, but um, it's really interesting. And now that you're kind of delving into all these different things, I think you might like it. Oh, I'd be super down. Is that like a program or a book or what is it? You can do a reading with someone. I have someone great. One of my best friends, Katie Calder. She's the best human design um, person. Email out there. me. I will, Email me yeah. her uh, contact info after this. When you said human design, I thought it was going to be like some CRISPR shit or like they're, <laughs> you know, they're so gene editing. I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was going to be like some gene editing stuff. Oh my God. No, we're not, we're, we're not going down that route. We're going to read like, your fucking astrological signs and shit. Like what, what is this, Gattaca? Come on. <laughs> 
That was a great movie, by the way. <laughs> I need to see that. I've never seen it. You never seen Gattaca? No, I've been going back and oh. watching older movies. Like I'm watching Wag the Dog right now. I'm in the middle of it. Just so, because the movies were movies used to be so much different and so much fucking better. Like yes. they had so much better character development. It drives me fucking like modern movies. When I find a, when I watch a modern movie that has like a good story, good character development, like nuanced themes, I'm like, oh my god! Like it's a breath of fresh air because I'm I can't watch term like uh uh. I'm thinking about the robot things. Oh, I don't know uh, what the Transformers. Oh, Transformers. like shit like that. Like, I can't <laughs> well, watch Michael well, okay, Bay all the time. Now you're speaking, I can get off on this rant for fucking hours because <laughs> this is like something I'm so passionate about. I almost hit the desk when you said that. Um, I've been going back and watching old movies and showing my girlfriend, like she'd never seen Braveheart until three weeks ago. Have you seen Braveheart? And no. Jesus I, Christ. Yeah, I'm like your girlfriend. If, if I would have known that, I would not have done this podcast. <laughs> um, so I've been going back and like watching Braveheart and Gladiator and Patriot and all those. these old movies before for the reason you said I feel like storytelling was better in the 90s and early 2000s. I don't know how many fucking times we we're going to remake John Wick. Oh my but god. But wow. every goddamn movie these days is some guy or gal that goes into retirement that somehow has to come out and realign with their old life and start fucking shit up again that is the premise of nine out of ten hollywood films right now and so it drives true. me fucking ape shit and i tell my friends i'll just say oh watch this movie it's john wick watch this movie it's john wick everything is that right now and it yeah. drives me nuts and then occasionally you have a movie like you said that comes out with an original storyline and you're like oh holy shit this is awesome um but i feel like those are so far be few and far between right now I'm always trying to find the one. I'm always, I'm like, I'm like searching for the one hidden in Amazon or something, something somewhere. And the fucking superhero movies, man. Like I've never, I've never been into those. My uh, dad loves them solely for the entertainment factor, but I'm with you on those. I've never, I think I've seen like one and a half Transformers movies. Um, I've seen maybe like two and a quarter Marvel movies. It's just not my thing. If they're on TV, sometimes I'll watch or on a plane, maybe because yeah. there's not much else to go on. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, I don't, I have a hard time finding things on Netflix to watch. I mean, five years ago, I felt like I could always find something to watch on Netflix. I even feel like documentaries were better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like a lot of documentaries now, and maybe it's because the funding they're getting forces them to have too much of a bias from the get go. But I feel like true documentaries that just tell the real story don't exist much anymore. There's almost always an angle as to what the documentary is trying to push when it comes to the end of it. And I think that probably comes from where they're getting the funding to create it. Oliver Stone's JFK documentary is fucking badass. I haven't though. seen that yet, but I actually, I actually almost watched it like a couple Dude, days ago. Really. Wait, wait, across... wait till, wait till the, the four hour version comes out. Cause it's a two hour version okay. right now. The four, I'm like, I'm like salivating for the four hour one. Cause he's just such like, he's just an OG and just like, doesn't give a fuck. And he's like, this is yeah. all like the, the official narrative is bullshit. Here's why like it's presents a, just a slew of evidence. And you're like, all right, well, like I love, I love that stuff. I'm, in, I'm relatively conspiratorial, though. Well, that's a that's a label you're putting on yourself. That's what you need to stop doing. <laughs> I mean, it's it, that's that's a label that like people understand. I think I'm just like, but that's a, a, but that's what we just talked about. Like hyper, I'm saying, hyper inquisitive. That's what we just talked. There you go. You're a curious <laughs> individual. Um, and that's what I just talked about. Though, like people are so afraid of being labeled. Like the whole conspiracy theory label, I think, holds people from just being curious about any kind of truth. Obviously, there's stuff that is so far down the fucking rabbit hole, it's completely bonkers. 
But there's a lot of stuff that's very surface level, very obvious, plenty of backing to know it's real. But as soon as they put the conspiracy th- label on it, people, they, they won't want to admit they believe it because they don't want to be called that. You know that term came out of the JFK assassination, right? That's a CIA I am ver- term. I am, ver- I am very aware of that. Yeah, it's fucking uh, insane. Did you, did you ever see that Mel Gibson movie, Conspiracy? No, I did not. That's a good movie. I think it's like from the late 90s. There's a Mel Gibson movie where he plays like a cab driver who's like really into conspiracy theories. And you watch it now and a lot of the stuff he was really into is like everyday life now. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like reading 1984. It's like reading any Orwell. Oh You're just like, god. oh my god, this yeah, is like yeah. That fucked me up. <laughs> I actually had an Uber driver that was super into Alex Jones and talked my ear off in traffic for like <laughs> half an hour. But I'm saying like some of that shit is very fucking ridiculous and yeah. i mean the thing about alex jones too is you gotta understand if people don't get this he makes his living on views so obviously he's gonna talk about shit that makes people share it and be like oh my god what's he saying now um i don't feel like he's a biased source i mean an unbiased source for fucking anything no but i do i do every, watch him every now and then it's like he'll, cause he'll bring up an article or something like that and I'm like, i won't watch I won't feed any of that shit because I think that guy's just trying to make money on clickbait. Oh, he is. And he's selling uh, crazy supplements and stuff. But every now and then yeah. for doing what I do, I'll see he'll, he'll post an article that's like from the guardian or something. And I'm like, Oh, I'll go check that out. I'll, I'll read it for myself and make my own decision. I don't let Alex Jones make my decisions for me, but sometimes he digs into things and I'm like, huh, that's interesting. In between the screaming and yelling and you have to, it's like, it's, you have to have a very refined filter <laughs> to watch that shit. I was, I was going to say, you do. You have to kind of know what you're getting into. He's baiting you with little bits of legitimacy here and there. Oh, I get baited me. so bad, Kyle. <laughs> Connor, Connor makes me watch this shit with him, and then I'm like fully in belief of everything Alex Jones uh, has said, and Connor has to reel my ass back in. And I'm, I'm like, like, hold on. But well, he this, made a really on. compelling argument. And this, this is what I was saying about like documentaries and stuff these days. There's not, there's not true journalism anymore because everything is a monetary source. Podcasts. People want podcasts that get a lot of listens because they can charge more for ads. People want a YouTube channel or a Rumble channel that gets a lot of you know views for the same reason. And so I have a hard time feeling like there's any true... Like you, you have to do it yourself. You have to, like you're saying, you have to take bits and pieces from everywhere. And then you have to kind of compose what you believe is the truth. And a lot of it is bullshit but i think a lot of it if you're just willing to look at multiple sources there's always some little connectiveness that where they all kind of connect and you're like okay this is probably what's really happening and that's another thing people just are afraid to do these days because you know there's so many memes and jokes online about oh i did my own research oh conspiracy theorists and it's just so detrimental to society as a whole to have be labeling everything the way we are well, yeah you I mean that, that that was the narrative was like doing your own research is bad and i'm like well yeah. no that's not that's that's Dude, not it, it, anytime that's, doing your own research is labeled as bad is a fucking controlling way to to view anything if if you if you go to a restaurant and you have a food allergy and you ask the chef what's on the menu and he says oh you gotta do you know you know don't do your own research just trust me uh, no, you should probably know what's going into that fucking food you're about to eat. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy to me. It's like one of those things that I almost am at a loss for words at. And as a writer, I have a hard time talking about it because it's just so wild how far we've moved away from thinking for yourself in any matter. Yeah. Or just allowing, and, even, and part of that is just allowing people to be wrong. Yeah. I don't, I don't take it personal once I disagree with someone. 
right? Yeah, like that's yeah. why I can watch somebody like Alex Jones and be like, this, it's like entertainment for me because I do news yeah. stuff. And I'm like, let me just like, I listen to, I can, if I can, I don't think he's any less credible than Rachel Maddow, to be completely honest with you. Like she's, yeah. she, she's peddles her own conspiracy theories. So I go watch that stuff and I'm like, yeah, I can like, I don't have to emotionally attach to any of this. Like I just can just like observe it and be like, that's funny. And then like move on and with that's, my life. That's a healthy way to look at it. And I think that's again, where we're putting too much trust in our government or media to, I'm trying to think of how to word this. Um, like you said, we're not allowing people to just be wrong. Like everything has to be so controlled by an ultimate source that you feel like everything that source has given you is correct. Whereas, you know, back in like the eighties, if you had like your friend that was spouting off a bunch of bullshit, you'd be like, Oh, that's just bullshit. And now if anyone spouts off bullshit, it's like automatically like, no, cancel them, kick them out of society, ostracize them. Like there's no, there's no room for people to express ridiculous opinions, which I, I think people should be allowed to say the dumbest shit they want to say and the truest shit they want to say. And people need to empower themselves more to be able to, you know, figure out the difference. Yeah. And that's a skill set on its own. It's like you got to, you got to like decentralize your information sources. You know what I'm saying? It's like you got to spread the I think it's a lack. I think it's a lack of trust people have in themselves. I think people are so filled with their own self doubt. Um, they're doubtful of their own decisions they make every day that they want other decisions just to be made for them. And as soon as you go down that route of trying to have decisions, you know, done for you, it's just sketchy how far it can go. Yeah. Whenever you have a societal kind of like adherence to that. And then those of those, those of us that don't really feel comfortable with that get labeled as like villains. It's like, well, this is, this is a, like, this is like you- a slippery, slippery fucking slope here. So do you think a lot of that comes from fear? Or do you think a lot of that comes from laziness? Oh, it's probably, a, a, I'd Both. say it's like a 50-50 split, yeah. honestly. Like I couldn't pick one. And I think it depends on the individual. Like it's very clear that a lot of decisions have been made out of fear in the past two years. Like, Are, are, are people afraid to trust their own research or are people just too lazy to do their own research? I guess is what I'm saying. I, I, think, thought, it, I think they've I been think taught to not 50, trust 50. it and also taught to allow people to do other things for you and not think for yourself. Yeah, like, I would agree. Like, I for would example, agree. With, this, think... with this Ukraine situation, right? Like, it's a very nuanced and complex situation that's going on right now. And this will come out a little bit after that, so maybe we'll have more information. So by me pointing out that, like, hey, you're being lied to here and here, like, be, keep your head on straight. Now I'm like a Putin apologist, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, that's because the, the you know, like, the, the ghost of Kiev wasn't a real thing, and that's, like, propaganda. <laughs> and this other thing that you, that, like, this was, this, this video that was shared was from a video game, and this was from a movie. It's like, these aren't real things that are happening. Just, like, everybody, like, keep your feet on the ground and, like, look at this thing critically and understand that the history of this didn't start two weeks ago. It started... 15 years ago, yeah. right? Like, this has been a whole thing. There's actually, there's supposed to be a really good Netflix documentary out right now. I can't, it's called like Winter on Fire or something. Maybe I'm getting the title completely wrong, but it's about the civil rights or the civil war that's been going on inside Ukraine. I think it just came out a couple of days ago. And it's yeah. supposed to be really, really insightful. I haven't watched it yet, though. I would be willing to check that out for sure because there's a lot going on there. But just by pointing that out, it's a, bi- mm-hmm. it's, 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 we live in, it seems like more and more a, a, a reality of binaries. Right. Yeah. You're either with Trump or with Biden. Right. Or you're either with Putin or you're with uh, Ukraine or you're it's like it's like there's I don't with any of these fucking people like I don't I'm not standing with Russia or standing with Ukraine. I'm just like 
I would prefer that people don't die. I would really enjoy that. Like we made like, let's mm-hmm. keep the death to a minimum. That's where I'm coming from. I don't give I don't want Russian soldiers to die or Ukrainian soldiers or civilians, especially on both sides of this situation. Right. So it's like, that's where I'm coming at this thing from. I would like for us not to be in another war. I would like for us people, everybody in this country to have clean drinking water. That's where I'm coming so, at this from, you know? So you're, you're actually coming at it with a bit of humanity, which is, I think where society is failing the most right now. And humans are very complex creatures and by trying to put everyone into one or two or three different buckets we're losing humanity and i think that kind of goes back to what we were saying too about not allowing people to be wrong we're not allowing people to be human and that's probably the biggest issue i think right now is there's no humanity in 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 any way shape or form that's really consistent across social platforms or across you know political parties that's where we need to try and return to and it's a complex issue everything is fucking complex relationships are complex raising a kid is complex deciding where to move or what job to take is a complex decision that's just human nature and we're trying to make everything so damn simple and straightforward by labeling it or putting it in this side or that side we're forgetting that life is fucking nuanced. That is yeah, life. Right. And that's the best that's, part of it, man. It's that, that's one of the most yeah. beautiful things about life. It's like, Hey, I fucked that up or this is wrong. Or I was right about this. Or like, it's just, I feel this way. I, I just, I, it's, it's a, a lot of times you can have two emotions conflicting with each other at the same time. And that's like a really unique, fun human experience mm-hmm. to have. You can like, de- so disconnect fun. From it. I yeah. love the, I love when that happens. <laughs> it's like my most fun experience. That's, that sounded like so sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, but it's nuanced, man. I think, I think uh, you're absolutely right, man. The humanity piece is, is a big, big part of that. Yeah, I think it's probably the biggest part of it. I think if we return to humanity, there'd be a huge, huge change in a lot of things. But I don't, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I think the, the way we've turned over most of our decision-making to algorithms or you know, talking heads on the TV, we've lost the ability to consider the complexity of what's going on with everything. Yeah. And I think that's the root of all conspiracy theories, you know, to use that term I don't like to use is a lot of times it's people that are willing to look at things in a complex way. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Absolutely, man. Wow. Well, it sounds like you need to be a guest on Connor's show, Thought Criminals, so y'all can just hash (laughs) this out. (laughs) Um, Kyle, we have been fans of yours for years, so thank you for making this happen. I know it's been a long time coming, like you said, um, but we love your work and um, everything that you're putting out into the world and the way you call bullshit on all the things. Um, It's it's been really fun to to witness you and, and all of your great writing. Thank you very much for having me. I'm sorry this took so long. But like I said, I think we ended up with a better recording than we would have two and a half years ago. So I feel like I've grown a lot as a person. And just the fact that I'm even open to being on a podcast more so now just kind of shows where I'm at in life to where, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to say about it other than the fact that I, I'm much more open and I'm a much you know, better person. I feel like when I reached out to you before, you were like, I've never been on a podcast. What are we doing? I didn't want to. I didn't want to because let me tell you, the reason why I didn't like being on a podcast is for one, I like writing because I have time to sit and mull things over. Being on a podcast is like, man, I say something fucked up. It's out there. And I just, I didn't like the idea of, you know, having stuff out there that I can't really, you know, think about 
too much. And a lot of that was just me trying to be con- too controlling in my life. And that's one of the things that becoming a father has taught me very well is letting go. And I think that was kind of a central point of this, how this conversation began talking about Cambo and ayahuasca and stuff is I'm at a point now in my life where I am so open to the idea of letting go and just letting things happen. And my life has become dramatically better because of it. I'm actually more successful now than I was two, two and a half years ago. I have more walk work opportunities, like everything in my life has just been going on the up and up, the more I just sit back and allow things to happen. And I wish more people could become comfortable with that and see how much it can dramatically change things for them. You know what? Ayahuasca for all, bro. Amen. I love it. Thank you so much, Kyle. We really appreciate it. I'll, 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 re- I'll, yeah. I'll report back my ayahuasca experience. And again, thanks for having me. Um, best of luck with your own child rearing. Hopefully that happens for you Thank guys you soon. Can't wait, man. Thanks, brother. <laughs>